Welcome to the Ridge Weekly Podcast. Relationships are so important, and yet they can be so difficult. The pandemic, social media, and a divided country have not helped. How do we develop new relationships or strengthen the ones that we have? How do we repair ones that seem to be broken? Listen to this week's talk from the series Through Thick and Thin as we explore ways to develop the kinds of friendships that will enrich our lives. So the summer after my junior year of high school, I was invited to go to Mountaineer Boys State. If you're unfamiliar with Boys State, basically it's down at Jackson's Mill, the 4-H camp, and a bunch of men from around the state gather and invite a couple hundred junior guys to come down and they teach you about local government. At that point in my life, I had been following Jesus for about a year, a little over a year at this point. And so the first evening when my counselor, the guy who's kind of in charge of our cabinet guys, when he came and he let us know, hey, tonight there's a Bible study, I was pumped. I was like, let's go. That's exciting. I'd love to go to that. However, none of the other guys in my cabin were too thrilled or excited at that idea. So I decided to go by myself. Uh, And that evening, I met a guy from Elkins named James Gaynor. And uh, right from the jump, I could tell he was an all right guy because he was wearing a UNC Tar Heels hoodie. And, you know, I bleed gold and blue, but when it comes to UNC Duke, that basketball rivalry, I'm I'm Tar Heels all the way. Sorry, any Duke fans listening. But um, as we studied that night and as we talked and, and read through the Bible, it became clear to me that James was really, really serious about his faith. And we connected that evening over our love for Jesus and our love of basketball And for the rest of the week, whenever we could spare a minute, we were at the basketball courts playing together, uh, or we were sharing about how Jesus had impacted our lives, or or where we thought Jesus might be leading us in this next season as seniors in high school. And for those of you that know me well, you you know I'm ultra competitive, right? I always resonated with Herm Edwards, the old New York Jets coach, who uh, emphatically told the media for about a minute straight that you play to win the game. That's kind of how I have approached every game I've ever played my whole life, whether it's rock, paper, scissors, or competitive sports, I'm playing to win. And during one of those basketball sessions, James and I were playing two-on-two against a couple other guys, and uh, it, was just, it was just one of those days. Like, the, the shots were just not falling, ball couldn't go in the hoop, I was struggling, he was too, we weren't playing great, and uh, I began to get really frustrated because I was super competitive and I did not like losing. And then James kind of noticed that, right? It was obvious that, that I was frustrated. And so he, he kind of called a timeout in a pickup basketball game, which is really strange. Uh, and he pulled me to the side and he was like, hey man, you're, you're not okay. And he wasn't talking about my basketball game. He was talking about emotionally. Something's wrong here. Something's off. And uh, he told me that we needed to pray. And I can imagine again, right, from the perspective of the other guys, he called a timeout and now they're praying. Like, that's a little strange. That's a little weird. But James felt like he needed to do that. So we prayed, and we went back to playing. And while he didn't intend it, I don't think, what he was communicating to me is that there's something more important than winning a pickup basketball game. And and for me, in that moment, winning a pickup basketball game was more important than representing Christ to these two guys who didn't know him. And and that was a really humbling experience. And, And now it's not really important, but I don't want your minds to wander and you to wonder for the rest of the talk. We did come back and win that game. I didn't want to tell you that, but I just didn't want your minds to wander and wonder what had happened. So just for your sake, wanted to let you know, put that to rest. But you see, we... I had a bunch of friends in high school and, and, and probably three or four like close friends. Like, right, I had a couple really good friends. But that friendship with James, it, it just started out different. 
And there was something different about that friendship. We hit it off right away and we were really close and, and we still remain friends to this day, even though we never lived in the same town, right? He was in Elkins, I was in Bridgeport. I went to WVU, he went to Wesleyan. Then he went to uh, med school at Marshall and we went to Clarksburg and DC. And then now he's in Louisville and we're here. We've never lived together or lived near each other, but we stay in touch. We visit each other. We would go on trips together. We've served together in church and in ministry. And we still remain friends to this day from, from that one week at Boys State. And this is the final week of our series through Thick and Thin, right? We're talking all about friendship for, for the past few weeks and, and right, kind of why it matters. What's the importance of, of forgiving and being empathetic and, and what makes a good friends and more. And, and, and it's been my experience in friendship that friendship often starts, it blossoms kind of out of a mutual interest, right? There's something you both like. And you bond over that thing. It could be a team you like, right? Like UNC or the type of music you listen to, the movies you watch, anything like that. And that, that, that stuff is all good. That's great. That's awesome. You should bond over those things. However, I think all of those commonalities, they pale in comparison to the common ground of knowing Jesus. And I think that's the reason my friendship with James was so different and was so strong right away was that we both had the same foundation of our lives. We were built on the same thing and we were, we were heading in the same direction. We were running after Jesus with everything we had. We still are to this day. And this leads me to my takeaway today. It's that Christ-centered friendships are the best friendships. They're the best friendships. And this morning, we're going to be looking at one of the best examples of friendships found in the Bible. It's a friendship a lot of you, if you grew up in church, you probably are very familiar with and are familiar with a lot of the stories. But it's a guy named David who eventually became the king of Israel, of God's people. And Jonathan, who is the son of the current king, the king right before David. So the king right before David was Saul, and it's his son Jonathan and David. They became best friends. Warren Wearsby notes this about their friendship. He says, too many Bible readers, they still view David and Jonathan as two frolicsome teenagers who liked each other because they had many common interests. But that picture is shallow and inaccurate. Jonathan had to be at least 20 years old to be in his father's army. And the fact that Jonathan was already commanding one-third of that army and had won two great victories, it indicates that he was a seasoned soldier and not a callow adolescent. And I want us to have an accurate picture in our mind when we're thinking of these two guys and, and the different accounts of, of their lives uh, because I think as we do that and as we look at their friendship, we're going to see four traits of their friendship that really stand out. And that first trait, and I think it's the most important trait, is that their friendship was Christ-centered. And that may seem a little strange because you'll notice Jesus is not in the accounts we're going to be looking at. In fact, what happened and what took place is about a thousand years before Jesus walked this earth but the reason I'm using that phrase is because it's a phrase that Christians, we kind of use to, to talk about or describe someone or something that is that kind of everything in their life is centered around or everything in their life is focused on or their primary goal is, is Jesus, is God, is getting to know him and making him known. They're fully focused com and committed to Christ or to God. And what we're going to see is that David and Jonathan were both people like that. They were fully committed to following God wherever he would lead them. They trusted him with everything, even their lives, no matter what. And so before we kind of dive in and look at these accounts of their friendship, I want to set the stage a bit, because as I said before, Saul, right, he's the king of Israel at this point in time, and there's this group of people called the Philistines, and they were kind of a neighboring civilization. And this neighboring civilization uh, started a war with Israel in 1 Samuel 11. So they attacked Israel, and we're going to kind of pick up the story right in the middle of this war. 
And we're going to find Jonathan, who was a commanding officer in his father's army. And we're going to find his armor bearer. And an armor bearer was basically like the right-hand man of somebody in the army. And so he would have had extra javelins, extra spears, extra defensive equipment, kind of anything. And anything Jonathan needed, he would have been right there at his right hand, right side, whatever he needed. And, and we're not focusing on their friendship between Jonathan and the armor bearer. But at the same time, it's really interesting. You'll notice that Jonathan's armor bearer, we don't really know his name, but he's an incredible friend. Just in this couple of verses we're going to read about him, he's a great friend. And I think, honestly, his friendship impacted Jonathan and how to be a friend he learned from his armor bearer. So we're going to see that play out in his relationship, Jonathan's, with David. So let's take a look at 1 Samuel 14. It says, That same day Saul's son Jonathan said to the attendant who carried his weapons, that's his armor bearer, Come on, let's cross over to the Philistine garrison. And a garrison is like a body of troops stationed for defense. When when an army would be on attack, they would set up at different strongholds a garrison, a troops to kind of hold down, fortify these strongholds. So they're looking at this Philistine garrison, and they say, hey, let's cross over to it on the other side. However, he didn't tell his father. See, in this situation, Israel's troops were vastly outnumbered. and, And actually, the chapter right before this in 13, Saul, he disobeys God. When he does this, there's a consequence. And Samuel, who was the prophet at the time that God was using to speak to Israel, he was the one that anointed Saul as king of Israel. He told him and said, hey man, God told me that your reign is coming to an end. There's a new king, a man whose heart is after God, and he is going to replace you. And so Saul hears this news and has disobeyed God, and he's feeling discouraged. and, And although he should have been leading his troops into battle, Again, he's feeling discouraged, and we find him actually hanging out under a pomegranate tree with about 600 of his soldiers. And at the same time he's doing that, Jonathan and his armor bearer set out to take on the Philistine troops by themselves. So they leave the camp. They come up to this treacherous terrain, this kind of gap that they have to pass, and we pick the story back up in verse 6. Jonathan said to the attendant who carried his weapons, Come on, let's cross over the garrison to these uncircumcised men. Perhaps the Lord will help us. Nothing can keep the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. His armor bearer responded, do what is in your heart. Go ahead, I'm completely with you. All right, Jonathan replied. We'll cross over to the men and we'll let them see us. If they say, wait until we reach you, then we'll stay there and we're where we are and we'll not go up to them. But if they say, come on up, then we'll go up because the Lord has handed them over to us. That will be our sign. And then they let themselves be seen by the Philistine garrison. And the Philistine said, look, the Hebrews are coming out of the holes where they've been hiding. The men of the garrison called to Jonathan and his armor bearer, come on up and we'll teach you a lesson, they said. Follow me, Jonathan told his armor bearer, for the Lord has handed them over to Israel. Jonathan climbed up using his hands and feet with his armor bearer behind him. Jonathan cut them down and his armor bearer followed and finished them off. In that first assault, Jonathan and his armor bearer struck down about 20 of the men in a half-acre field. And in the wake of this kind of surprise defeat by Jonathan and his armor bearer, uh, it's really interesting what happens next. The Lord actually spreads fear throughout the whole camp. They kind of break out in mass hysteria. They don't know left from right, up from down, who's good, who's bad, anything. And so Saul and the rest of the Israelite troops, they join uh, Jonathan and his armor bearer, and they have a major victory in this war. A victory that was set into motion by Jonathan's trust that the Lord is faithful. 
While his father, on the other hand, was too scared to act. So what does this story reveal about Jonathan? I, I, I think it reveals the depth of his relationship and faith in God. And in my opinion, he, he had to have been pursuing God with everything he had, hearing him, knowing his voice. I think of what Jesus says in John chapter 10, where he says, right, my sheep know my voice, they hear me. And I think Jonathan was that same way. He knew God's voice. He listened to him because he spent time with him, because he pursued him. He ran after him. He was committed to him. His life was centered around serving God, no matter the cost. We're going to skip ahead a couple chapters to 1 Samuel 17, where we see one of the best examples of David's faithfulness to God. And it's one of the most familiar stories in the Bible. Uh, It's when David slew Goliath. And at this point, David had already been already been chosen by God to be Israel's new king, but Saul was still alive. So Saul's still king, while David's going to be the next king, and so he's not going to begin serving as king for some time. We're going to read just a short portion of the story, picking up in verse 45. David said to the Philistine, to, to Goliath, You come against me with a sword, a spear, and a javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord of the armies, the God of the ranks of Israel. You have defied him. Today the Lord will hand you over to me. Today I'll strike you down. I'll remove your head and give the corpses of the Philistine camp to the birds of the sky and the wild creatures of the earth. Then all the world will know that Israel has a God. And this whole assembly will know that it is not by sword or by spear that the Lord saves. For the battle is the Lord's. He will hand you over to us. I I love the example of David's confidence in God. I mean, he is as sure as sure could be walking up to Goliath, to this man that no one could defeat, and he is just so confident that God is the one that is in control, not this big man that I could never take in any realistic way. And and it's incredible we see in David the same way we saw in Jonathan, a man who is certain of who God was and that God was faithful. It's an assurance of God and a devotion to God that laid the foundation of everything else in their beautiful friendship. The second trait that we see in their friendship is their commitment to each other. See, these were two men who were fully committed both to God, but also to seeing one another succeed. And we see the first signs of this kind of incredible loyalty right after David took down Goliath. He's hanging out with Jonathan and with Saul, who was king, uh, together. And here's what happens next in 1 Samuel chapter 18, verses 1 and 3. It says, when David had finished speaking with Saul... Jonathan was bound to David in close friendship, and he loved him as much as he loved himself. Saul kept David with him from that day on and did not let him return to his father's house. And Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as much as himself. So Jonathan decided in that moment forward, I want to be committed and loyal to this guy. There's something about this guy that, that man, I want to be with him and we want to be partners. We want to be kind of together uh, in this thing, in running after God together forever, this commitment. And it, it's called a covenant. And a covenant, all it is, is, is kind of an agreement or pact. Hey, we're going to be in this thing together for good. And so they make kind of the first of three covenants we're going to look at together right there. And then we see in verse 2 something weird, right? It says that Saul kept David in his house. That's like a strange thing to say, but all it essentially means is that Saul saw this young and promising warrior, David, uh, who had just defeated Goliath, and he's like, hey, it would be pretty beneficial for me from like a political and military perspective if I had him kind of in my house, if he was a part of kind of the, the royal people, so to speak. And so he's kind of, hey, let's bring him into this. It's going to be really good. But as we see 
his motives are not all that pure. J.D. Greer and Heath A. Thomas, they note this about Saul. They say, it's no wonder Saul attempted to bring David into his royal retinue. Since he was a young and promising warrior, David would be a great political and military ally. His presence in the royal house would certainly boost morale. However, the text gives other motivations at work in Saul as well. He experiences the burning pangs of jealousy in his heart and his life. And it's a jealousy that he left unchecked. It's a jealousy that he allowed to get out of hand, and it's a jealousy that led him to attempt to murder David on multiple occasions. And and we see in those occasions Jonathan's commitment and loyalty to David. The first one is in 1 Samuel chapter 19, starting in verse 1. It says this, that Saul ordered his son Jonathan and all his servants to what? To kill David. But Saul's son liked David very much, so he told him, My father, Saul, intends to kill you. Be on your guard in the coming morning and hide in a secret place and stay there. I'll go out and stand beside my father in the field where you are, and I'll talk to him about you. When I see what he says, I'll tell you. Jonathan spoke well of David to his father, Saul. He said to him, The king should not sin against his servant, David. He hasn't sinned against you. In fact, his actions have been a great advantage to you. I mean, he took his life in his hands when he struck down the Philistine. And the Lord brought a great victory for all of Israel. You saw it and rejoiced. So why would you sin against innocent blood by killing David for no reason? And in verse 6, Saul listened to Jonathan's advice and he swore an oath. As surely as the Lord lives, David will not be killed. So Jonathan summoned David. He told him all these words, and then Jonathan brought David to Saul, and he served him as he did before. And just an interesting story, right, where Saul is kind of stepping out and saying, man, this guy needs to die. And Jonathan, it's, it's so cool looking at his story, his integrity. He never uh, kind of rescinds his loyalty or commitment to his father, but he doesn't to David either. He's loyal and committed to both of them. And he's loyal and committed to his father and David, and, and we see this, he convinces Saul to change his mind. And and, and what's crazy about this, though, he changes his mind, and then he commits an oath to the Lord. I'm never going to try this again. This will never happen, never come out of my mouth. And what happens the very next chapter later? He is trying to kill David yet again. And so Jonathan and David are coming up with a plan to how do we get out of this situation again? We shouldn't be here, but we're in this pickle. My dad wants to kill you. What are we going to do? And they're coming up with this plan to keep David safe And as they're finishing coming up with this plan, we see what happens. They make another covenant together. It's in verse 14 of chapter 20. Jonathan says to David, if I continue to live, show me kindness from the Lord. But if I die, don't ever withdraw your kindness from my household. Not even when the Lord cuts off every one of David's enemies from the face of the earth. Then Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, may the Lord hold David's enemies accountable. So basically, Jonathan and David agree, hey, this covenant is going to last beyond us. We're going to be kind of in this thing together. We're going to be looking out for each other, having each other's back. But if I die, you need to be looking after my kids and their kids. And I want you to do the same. And so they're, they're kind of, this is a lifelong covenant. Now this is a generational covenant. We're going to look out for each other. We're in it to win it to the end. And oftentimes, I, I think friendships are really great when everything's good. But as soon as there's some kind of trouble, there's some drama being stirred up, there's some uncertainty, 
a lot of times one or both parties tend to kind of pull back and, and kind, of, kind of step away. The incredible thing is this wasn't the case with Jonathan and David. I mean, I would argue that their commitment grew in spite of everything going on, in spite of everything that was happening. I mean, we read after all of this chaos of, of Saul trying to kill David, right? They renew their covenant together, and then this happens again, and Jonathan continues to remain loyal to David, and they renew their covenant with one another a third time. We see it in 1 Samuel chapter 23. It says, David was in the wilderness of Ziph and Haresh when he saw that Saul had come out to take his life. Then Saul's son Jonathan came to David in Haresh and encouraged him in his faith in God, saying, do not be afraid, for my father Saul will never lay a hand on you. You yourself will be king over Israel, and I'll be your second in command. Even my father Saul knows it's true. Then the two of them made a covenant in the Lord's presence. And here's the cool thing about their commitment to one another. I think their commitment to one another is predicated on God's faithfulness to them. I think they're free to commit themselves fully in friendship because they know well and good that God is sovereign and in control and is faithful and committed to them. And they kind of are following him wherever he'll lead. And at this point in time, he has led them to this place together as brothers. The third trait that we see in their friendship is consideration. And that might seem like an odd word to use, but I'll explain it in a moment but before we do that, let's turn back to 1 Samuel chapter 18. We're going to look again uh, at that section where right after David had slew Goliath and they're kind of talking, David, Jonathan, and Saul, what happens there? We're going to look at a verse we skipped over earlier, verse 4. It says this, it says, Then Jonathan removed the robe he was wearing and he gave it to David, along with his military tunic, his sword, his bow, and his belt, and that verse, I feel like that's kind of like one of those throwaway verses sometimes, like I would have, I do a lot of times, I just kind of reading the Bible, and I just skip right over it, and it's just like kind of silly details, but I, I think it's something that's really important, like I think it doesn't seem like a big deal, but I think what Jonathan is doing when he's giving this robe, this tunic, his armor, his weapons, what he's doing is he's acknowledging that David is going to be the next king, not himself, and Jonathan's giving up his rightful place to the throne. The commentary critical and explanatory on the whole Bible, it notes this. It says that to receive any part of the dress which had been worn by a sovereign or his eldest son and heir, it's deemed in the East the highest honor which can be conferred on a subject. So as I read this account, what it seems to me is that Jonathan, what he's doing is he's passing along the birthright of the throne to David. I mean, David already would have had clothes. And Saul brought him into his house and he would have been one of his commanding officers. And so he would have given him weapons and defensive stuff and armor, all that. Like anything he would have needed, he would have had. And so it's not like he was in need and he was just giving him what he had. He was kind of making a statement that, hey, my life is not about me. Even though I'm the one that's the rightful heir to the throne, my life is about what God wants and my life is about my friend. And so I'm going to put you and your needs and what God wants above that of my own. It makes me think about what Paul says in Philippians chapter 2. He says this in verse 1. He says, if there's any encouragement in Christ, if any consolation in love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, make my joy complete by thinking the same way, having the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose, do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, consider others as more important than yourselves. 
Everyone should look not to his own interests, but rather to the interests of others. Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus. And this is what a relationship of mutual encouragement looks like. Having one another's interests above your own. Great friendships that consist of two people doing this. Putting their wants, their needs, their desires aside and beneath that of their friend. They're more considerate of the other person than themselves. And as Paul outlines in Philippians, our example and our reason for doing this is Jesus. It's the way in which he lived. See, Jesus considered us more important than himself. He laid his entire life down so that we might live. And the cool thing is, so did David and Jonathan for one another. The final trait that we see stand out in the friendship between Jonathan and David is care. I want to look back again at Samuel chapter, 1 Samuel chapter 18, those first three verses, where it says this, When David had finished speaking with Saul, Jonathan was bound to David in close friendship, and he loved him as much as he loved himself. Saul kept, Saul kept David with him from that day on and did not let him return to his father's house. Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as much as himself. And then later on, we see at the very end of the book of 1 Samuel, the beginning of 2 Samuel, Saul and Jonathan eventually die in battle. And, and if you know anything about David, you might know he's a harpist and he writes songs. Most of the books are Psalms and the book of Psalms is written by David. And uh, we find a song that he wrote for Saul and Jonathan in 2 Samuel chapter 1. And uh, don't worry, I asked Adam, he told me I'm not allowed to sing the song for you, so I'm just going to read it to save your ears. And in verse 26, uh, just one excerpt from it, this is what David says. He says, I grieve for you, Jonathan, my brother. You were such a friend to me. Your love was more wondrous than the love of women. Now before I go on, I just want to ask something of you and just ask that you please don't take this relationship of brotherly love and infection, affection and encouragement that these guys have for each other and, and turn it into something sexual. The word love that we find in those verses are the same, uh, same word for love that we find back in 1 Samuel 18. It's the Hebrew word ahava. It's used 40 times-ish in the Old Testament, and only a handful of those times does the word have any kind of instance or convey any sexual meaning. And in those instances when it does, it's really clear. The context makes it explicit what it is really talking about. But the vast majority of times that it is used, it's kind of used to describe a general love or feeling toward another person um, or God toward his people. And so when Jonathan says, I love David as much as I love myself, or some translations use as much as my own soul, it makes me think of what Jesus said, right? And that we're to love our neighbors as our self. In other words, Jonathan is saying that, man, when I look at David, it's like looking in a mirror. I see someone who kind of loves God as much as I do, who's kind of has his life centered around Christ, and man, it is refreshing, and I care about this guy. The CSB Study Bible notes this. It says that the text does not suggest that David had a homosexual relationship with Jonathan or that David had a poor relationship with his wives. Rather, it speaks to an unbreakable friendship bond between men that has been witnessed countless times and in countless cultures throughout history. Oftentimes, something that, that we can tend to do is, is read our current cultural context back into ancient texts like the Bible and, and in passages like this, and we can wind up missing the point. And partly I think that happens in this particular case because 
we rarely see two men show each other kind of a real brotherly affection. I mean, guys, we're, we're pretty terrible at this kind of stuff, at, at talking about our feelings and showing our emotions to one another. I mean, sometimes we, we might think it's a sign of weakness if I do that. It's not a sign of strength, but a sign of weakness. Or, or sometimes maybe we're uncomfortable with it because of the way in which we grew up or, or maybe something that's happened in our past that caused us to be uncomfortable in those situations. So the reasons vary why, why we don't really like doing it, but the thing that remains true is that true friends are free and secure enough to show each other brotherly affection, to care for one another, to talk about what's going on in their lives, to give a hug, to tell you I love you. And David and Jonathan are incredible examples of this brotherly affection and how it can play out in a really healthy and good way. I think it's an example that we should follow more closely. Because these were two men who their friendship, it was centered on Christ. It was Christ-centered. They had an incredible commitment to one another. They had a level of consideration that I just couldn't imagine giving up my rightful throne to be the king of a people to, one, to someone else. And, and they had a level of care that we often don't see. So the question is, looking at this friendship and, and all the traits of it, where does it leave us? And I think it, it takes us back to our takeaway this morning, which is that Christ-centered friendships are the best friendships. And this doesn't mean that we don't befriend people who aren't Christians. However, things are different. Those relationships are different. If you're a Christian, if you're running after Christ, you're running a different race on a different path than someone who isn't. We still want to befriend non-Christians, but we make the, but the most life-giving friendships are the ones that are centered on Christ. And, and we really want you to have great relationships and great friendships here at the Ridge. It's one of the things we really care about. But those friendships are ones that are Christ-centered. And so because that's the case, I have just two questions I want you to consider. The first is, is Christ the center of your life? See, Jesus offers to save us from our sin, from our sin to an abundant life that's full through his death and his resurrection. And once we place our faith, our trust in him, we can live lives of freedom, lives fully submitted to Jesus and who he is. So have you placed your faith in him to save you? And if so, have you taken that next step of, of submitting everything in your life to him and making him the center of your life? Another way I think you could phrase that question is, are you, are you fully committed to Jesus, to following him wherever he would take you, even if it looked like imminent defeat, like it did for Jonathan and David on a few different occasions? If you want to enjoy the privileges of a friendship like David and Jonathan, it starts with the foundation of Jesus. And my second question for you is this, is, is, is Christ the center of your relationships? Because I think when we have Jesus as the center of our lives, we're able to learn from his example of being committed to, of being considerate, of being caring toward others as Christ is to us. And there's nothing wrong with talking about basketball, playing disc golf, with watching movies, playing video games, whatever the things is that you and your friends love to do and enjoy together, but praying for one another, are you encouraging one another? Are you sharing scripture? Are you, are you doing things like this that'll help put Jesus at the center of your relationship and keep him there? And then lastly, I just want to think about those, those friends of ours who, who don't know Christ. I would encourage you to just be praying for those people. Be praying for opportunities to share Christ with them for, for their own sake because if we truly love these people, if we truly care about them and we truly believe what we do about Jesus, then we have to be concerned about their spiritual well-being, about where they stand with Christ, because those of us who do know Jesus, we know that he changes everything. He's the ultimate difference maker. 
It's an eternal difference that he makes. He's the place in which we find love and freedom and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness. All of these things are found in Jesus. Grace and truth, he gives it to us and he is there and he is faithful forever and always. That is the Jesus we know and love and get to serve. The Jesus who we can put at the center of our lives and we should. The Jesus who if we put him at the center of our relationships, they will thrive. And the Jesus that our friends who don't know him desperately need. Let's pray. God, we just thank you again for who you are. We thank you for your faithfulness. Because all of us in this room, everyone listening, every human that has ever existed, we're not great at being faithful. We're not great at staying committed to you or, or to each other. And so we thank you for your faithfulness to us, God. And we just ask that you can help us to continue to put you at the center of our lives at the center of our relationships, and to share you with those of our friends who don't know you. God, and we do just pray for those of us in this room listening, God, who maybe struggle with friendships or feel like they don't have any friends, please help them to know that they're not alone. They have you. They have you. They have this church. They have this place. There are friends here, people who will befriend them like David and Jonathan. And so I pray that we can all find friends like David and Jonathan and that we can be friends like David and Jonathan. It's in your son Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Ridge Weekly Podcast. If you'd like to hear more messages now, you can check out our past series at theridge.church slash messages or download the free Ridge app. Thanks again for listening, and we will see you next time.